Morning. We're starting a new series, and it's uh, it's on the book of James. And I just got to tell you a little bit about the book of James. Not gonna, I mean, not, not five minutes worth, just a couple minutes. Um, there are some great theologians that whose names, I won't mention them because I think they changed their mind later in their lives, but um, who, who really wished that the book of James wasn't in the scripture. Um, because it seems to, and it's not accurate, but it seems to say that you need to do good things in order to get saved. And that means that your works produce salvation. It's not what James is saying, but some of his verbiage kind of leans that way. So I wanted you to know a couple of things. Number one, a lot of the theology, the idea of Christ and the idea of grace and faith and, and, and justification, all those good churchy Christian words, a lot of those were just starting to develop that idea when James wrote this book. As far as we know, and we're pretty sure on this, James, the book of James, just those five chapters of James, are, is the earliest writing that made it into Scripture. So Jesus died in 30, between 30 and 35 A.D., okay? So we, we think it's about 33, but then when we go back and we do the math, it turns out he wasn't born in zero. Um, the guy who figured it out the first time got it wrong, okay? But we know about where... Um, Jesus died. It's a five-year period in there. And we know about when James, this book, was authored. And it's between 58 and 62 AD. So if Jesus died, let's just use round numbers. If Jesus died in 30 and James was authored in 60, remember when Jesus died, he died and there was no such thing as Christianity. When he rose from the dead and people started realizing that the Messiah was the suffering servant, that God had done what, what he didn't ask Abraham to do and sacrifice his son for God. God sacrificed his son for us. That began this movement. About 40 days after Jesus died, um, the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost and, and there's this, these conversions that start to take place. But in t- between 20 and 30 years time, the church had gone from not existing to being a group of people that are human and that are flawed, just like we are today. And James is addressing some of those things. James was the brother of Jesus. He had several siblings. Um, And James didn't really think that Jesus was all that right away. When he started his ministry, he started doing miracles and teaching. James and his brothers were asking, like, who does he think he is? I mean, he used to have a snotty nose. You know, I used to play tag with him, and he's pretty slow. He's the Messiah? You'd think we would have known. But he came around, and James ends up being the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, you know, the, the, the hub of Judaism, and it became the hub of Christianity. And, and James is that leader. In fact, James was so faithful later in his life that the, at least what we know is he was thrown off a high place on the temple and martyred. He was thrown to his death. And all he had to do was say, I'm lying. The whole Jesus thing didn't really happen. So this is a, it's a man of courage. This is a man who does not mince words. This is a man who does not pull punches. And this church, in just such a short period of time, had turned into like things we don't like. For example, there were some really rich and powerful people that became Christians, and they used the church as a way to exploit those in the church that were lesser than them. There were people that, that they were converted to Christianity, and they continued to do things 
that they did before they were Christians that any Christian today would look at and go, that is filthy. So James addresses those things. There were people holding grudges against other people. James addresses those things. There were people that are saying, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want, anytime I want. And James addresses those things. In fact, that's primarily the people that he's after. So we're going to read just a short little section in here. And there's a metaphor that he uses that we're going to concentrate mostly on. And I want to give you a heads up. I've finally come into being, I've finally come into the 2000 teens, and I am experiencing things on the internet. Do you know what that is? I found out that so many people watch cat videos. And I am amazed. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not a cat person. But I'm going to be, I don't usually do cutesy. So I'm going to use a cutesy picture at the end of this, and it has to do with a little kitty cat. So I'm teasing you right now to see if you can figure out what that picture is going to be, what, what, what kind of analogy or what kind of statement is it going to try to make. So we're going to read here in uh, James chapter 1, verses 19, and a few following. It reads like this. My dear brothers, take note of this. Now, I want you to know in Greek what that means. Not all of us are fathers. But all of us had one. And if you had a dad that was around at all, I just want you to know the tone that James is taking here. He's not pulling punches. So I had a, my, my dad, when I was young, he was around until about sixth grade, and then he was just gone. But there were those times when, you remember the first time your dad told you a joke that had a, had a cuss word in it? You know, and you, don't tell your mom. And you had this little thing, right? You had this little, um, and, but there were times when your dad is joking around with you and then suddenly he turns and he's getting kind of stern and you don't really, you don't catch up real quick. And so your dad has to say something like, hey, you listen up, I'm serious. Oh, and then I always had the little tremble on the lip and the little, <laughs> that was me. That's what James is doing. He's saying, my dear brothers, you listen up, take note of this. What I'm going to say, I mean, and it's serious. And he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the, righteousness, or the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, I don't think that what James is trying to say is if you read this and you think about it, you're going to be saved. I think he's talking about the word. Remember in in John 1, it says, um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. It was with God in the beginning. The word became flesh, John 1, 14, and dwelt among us. And he's talking about the things that Jesus said that were starting to float around in bits and pieces in writing but he's trying to say, it's not, it's not that you just, if you read something and you remember it, then all of a sudden you're saved. That's not what he's getting at. And he does tell us here, he says, be slow or quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Now we know, our, again, I just realized this on the internet. I don't know if you know that this happens, but when people make comments about stuff online, most people are really kind. Have you seen that? I mean, they're like, oh, that was such a great video. I think that's one. Oh, can I get to know you? Especially if it's a political thing. I mean, people are so understanding these days. I just, I don't. If we're quick to judge other people, we're quick to be, get angry and we stay kind of bitter. How are we doing? I mean, is that, is that what God wants for us? James is saying what Abraham Lincoln said. Better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. 
He's saying be temperate. Just, just understand the other person. Treat them like a child of God that they are. And then respond in a way that Christ would have you respond. It's that simple. The moral filth thing that he's talking about here, you know, what, what they thought was filthy, what James thought was filthy, we probably think is filthy too. But there were things in that culture that, they, that were filthy as far as Christ would look at them, but they thought were okay. And that seems true today. In fact, what was filthy when I was a kid, no longer filthy. My mom took me, the first, first PG movie I ever went to was Bad News Bears. Now, some of you remember that movie. Some of you have no idea. That's fine. I'm old. I get it. But it was a PG movie about little league boys. And one of them had a lot of snot on it coming down. His, I get it. Um, but my mom took me. She's a southern belle. And there's the S word, S, and there's a few F-bombs in this movie. She was mortified. I mean, absolutely, we almost pulled us out. And we're like, Mom, don't make a scene. Um, because how could this, this movie about kids and these kids are swearing and it was horrible. We called that in my house bathroom language. Uh, my mom, literally, if I used the, the S word, or excuse me, the S word for you, I got to turn around. If I used that word, we call it bathroom language. She would take me into the bathroom. She would put a bar of soap in my mouth and I would have to sit there until it foamed. And one time she was out and she squirted Dick Dawn. And I had to take a little water, and I wasn't allowed to swallow, which I didn't want to, but I had to hold it in there for 30 seconds, because that will purify my mouth from the filthy language that's coming out of it. I get it. But what we thought was filthy then, now it shows up in everything. And what, so I want you to think, we think that we're a lot different than they are, because we've evolved. But what, what James saw as filthy behavior is still the same filthy behavior that we've kind of become accustomed to. And I'm not just talking about the words we use, although James spends a lot of time talking about taming our tongue. But things haven't changed that much. And James wants to address it because Jesus addressed it. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, that doesn't sound like works righteousness. If I'm a follower of Christ... In order to follow Christ, I have to, get this, follow Christ. You remember the story of the rich young man who comes up and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, he has a little argument, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. But he says, keep the commandments. Love, your, you know, love the Lord your God. And he goes on down, honor your mother and father. And the guy ticks them all off on his little uh, whatever version of an iPhone he had back then. And, and, and he goes, I've done all those since I was a kid. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. The guy walked away. He wanted to hear what God said, but he didn't want to do what God called him to do. So I'm just going to give you a hint on the whole following Jesus thing. It is impossible to follow Jesus and actually follow Je without actually following Jesus. So if he came to me like he did with a fisherman on the shore, and he says, follow me, and I go, well, I'm, but I'm, I'm I, there's a three-pounder in here. I want to, or my dad, my, my dad is sick, and I just, I just need to spend a little bit more. Um, and ah, it's kind of inconvenient right now. Can I, can I wait until I've made enough money and I, my house is paid off? And then, no. You don't follow Jesus unless you actually follow Jesus. You don't know Jesus unless you actually know Jesus. And the scripture makes a distinction there. Knowing about and knowing aren't the same thing. The demons, James says, 
they know the truth of who God is. They know the truth of who Jesus is. They know. But you can't convince me that Satan is a follower of Christ. He knows so much about Christ and the truth that he, he can develop a pretty effective plan, he thinks, to come in opposition to the truth. So hearing it and knowing it and doing nothing with it, it's an excuse. I'll give me an example of the, the hearing and the doing. Um, Memorial Day was founded, I believe, soon after the Civil War because we were fighting each other. But it was, it was meant to remember those who had fallen in the service of their country in wartime. So the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Spanish-American War, Civil War. Civil War lasted four, four years, one month, and one day. Stonewall Jackson was one of the great generals in the Civil War. And he found him, him and his troops on the wrong side of a river. So they were on this side, and they needed to be on this side, but they had wagons and ordnance and cannons and ammunition and tents, all, all the stuff that an army needs. And so he went to his Corps of Engineers, and he said, we need to make really short order, really short work of getting all of our wagons all of our ordnance, ammo, tents, and supplies and people from this side of the river to this side of the river get to work. And if you're an engineer, it's, you're not going to look good in this illustration. I'm sorry. My uncle is a civil engineer in south central Georgia. He does great work. But engineers think differently than the rest of us. Okay? So they go off into a tent and they, they, they've got their, I don't know what kind of paper they had, but they're, they're starting to draw plans for a bridge. Out of courtesy, the general, General Stonewall Jackson, goes up to his wagon master and he says, just heads up, we got to get all your wagons, all this ordinance, all these cannons, all these troops, all these tents, we got to get them across the river. So just want you to be, be ready. When we give the word, you got your, they have to be ready because the mission that we're on is crucial that we get from this side of the river to this side of the river. So when Stonewall Jackson goes away, it's about six o'clock at night, he goes away and he's going to do what generals do. Um, and the wagon master just said, okay, started telling all his people, gather up all the stones, pull up a bunch of fence posts. I'm sure the property owners love that. Uh, pick up the fence posts and rails and cut down some trees. And by, before dawn the next morning, the wagon master came to, to, to Stonewall Jackson, the general, and says, sir, all the wagons, all the ordnance, all the cannons are across the river. You just need to give the words to move the troops. Six o'clock at night to before six in the morning, everything's moved. Where are my engineers? They're still drawing up plans. Okay, nothing against engineers. But sometimes when we hear what God wants, just do it. Sometimes it takes debate and thought. Sometimes debate and thought are excuses. When we were in Hungary a year ago, Pastor Doug and I and our wives, uh, we were talking with some of the theologians there, and one of them was joking about what he calls convenient theology. Now, this isn't the particular thing, because they speak Hungarian and English, and I didn't really follow it all, but, but this isn't the thing they were discussing. But if let's say that two seminary, seminary professors are debating for hours at a time, maybe a week, about how many angels can stand on the point of a pin. Who cares? But convenient theology, sometimes we get so caught up and we use it as an excuse. We, we debate minute little things. We don't like what the scripture says, so we, we try to find another interpretation. Sometimes we don't want to hear what Jesus says. We want to make it that he said something else. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about and writing and deciding whether or not, what is he really asking us to do? Instead of 
just loving your neighbor. He says that people that listen and don't do, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, he's speaking metaphorically. I don't know what kind of mirrors they actually had back then. But he's talking about, if you, if you look, what do you see? Who do you see? Some theologians say that he's talking about the people that look in the mirror and they go, wouldn't change a thing. Now, I don't know anyone like that. I don't know anyone. I know, not me. I try to layers so that other people don't know all the things I need to change. But, and I know it doesn't fool anybody, but... I don't think that there was anybody, maybe there was, but to, to take that just a little further, when, if, if you look in the mirror, so to speak, metaphorically, and you look at your faith and you go, I got this together. So there's nothing to change, right? There's nothing, to, nothing. I don't think that's who James is talking to, but if he was, if you're someone who thinks I've arrived, no, you haven't. If you're the person though, that looks in the mirror and, and walks away and all you remember is your flaws, like I have a huge head. Is it up on the screen? Yeah, it's huge. When I was in high school, they had to order, special order every year, a helmet to fit me because it's an eight. Seven and three quarters was high. I have a huge head. Now, if I look in the mirror, that's what I'd like to change, that and this. I don't want to change that bad though, do I? So if I look at that and I see my flaws and I see my failures and I see my manatee scars and, and I must be a great big disappointment to God. I'm speaking metaphorically. I know I'm talking physically, but, but if you look at your faith and you see your failures or you see the times you were a coward when you had an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus and you decided not to, or when you, you got angry with the people that were driving down the road and cut you off instead of going, they're probably trying to go to the hospital. He's saying that if you know about Jesus and you've had the faith planted in you, he talks about the, the perfect law that gives freedom. Um, that's Jesus talks about. Remember the, the parable of the sower and the seeds, that they scatter the seeds and some falls on hard, rocky ground and some falls in ground with, and, and they start to grow and then the thistles choke it out and then some falls on fertile soil. And it grows and it nourishes and it, and it rains. It's just what it's supposed to be. James is saying the same thing. He goes, if you listen and you hear, do. You don't do to prove to God that you love him. You do because you love God. When you look in the mirror, metaphorically speaking, who do you see? Do you see your flaws? Do you, think that when, do you think that when you look at yourself and you see your mistakes, that God looks at you and that's what he sees? Who do you see? And then here's the follow-up question. Who should you see? And I don't think you should see Jesus. But I don't think we always look at ourselves the way he would have us look at him. Let me, can you guys put that picture up there? 
It didn't work quickly last time, but let's just see. You guys see my hearing aid right there? There we go. You guys got that picture? There it is. Told you it's cute. I don't know if the kitty cat really believes it's a lion. I don't think kitty cats really believe anything. And I know it's Photoshop, but when you were a child, you had an imagination. And you could go out in the backyard, set up a tent, and when it got dark, and you heard the bulldog or the bulldogs, the bull, the bullfrogs croaking, and you heard the crickets, and there were some sounds that you don't know what they were, you convinced yourself that you were in the middle of nowhere. You're 20 yards from your back door, but you are on a safari. Mom can come bring you breakfast in a little while, or you could go in and use the flush toilet, but you're in the middle of nowhere because you had this ability to, to think of things and create things in your mind that, that became true for the moment. When I look in the mirror of my faith, what I should see is not my failures, but I should see the portrait that Christ paints of me. I should see myself the way Christ sees me. And this is scriptural. Paul, the author of two-thirds of the New Testament, he says, continue to live up to what you've already attained in Christ. In other words, become who you already are. But if I'm looking at and seeing my flaws and sealing my failures, that produces in me something other than what God wants to produce in me. What he wants to produce in me is the fruit, not the fruits, but the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you look in the mirror, are you seeing all of those things growing in you? See, there's this thing called sanctification, big word, Jesus loves you just the way you are. He does not want to leave you that way. The process by which he doesn't leave you that way, we call sanctification. And what he wants is to make you more loving, joyous, peaceful, humble, faithful. If when you look at your own faith life, if you go, I am adored by God. I'm so valuable to God that he did not withhold his son, but sent his son to walk with us, talk with us, know us, love us, and die for us so we don't have the penalty that we deserve. If I have a God that loves me so much, don't I want to do what he thinks is best for me and for others? Of course. So when you look in the mirror, who do you see? I hope to God that you see the person God made you to be. Because if you don't, it's possible, according to James, that you don't really know the God you claim to know. You can know about it, but if you do nothing with it, you're not cooperating with him. You, you've decided to let the, the seed of faith fall onto hard ground. But if it falls on fertile soil, it will grow, and it will produce fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So one more picture and then we'll close it off. You guys remember who, the, who Alexander the Great is? Okay, you've heard the name, right? I don't know if he was great or not. I know he was a brilliant military tactician, and he killed a lot of people. But one night, he couldn't sleep. He's walking around, 
And one of his guards, it was, it was illegal just as it is today to fall asleep at your guard post. If you're guarding, if you're out there, you're, you're on watch, you're supposed to stay awake. Rule number one in being a guard at night on watch is stay awake. And he walks up to one of his, one of his soldiers and he sees him. He's got his, uh, like a kid in the back seat, you know, when it's too late and you're trying to keep them awake because if they fall asleep now, they're not going to sleep when they get home. Just me, Okay. He's doing this, and so it's going to get loud here for a second. Uh, Alexander the Great, from a distance from here to there, goes, Soldier! Startles him awake, as it would, and he's, you know, spear ready. What's your name, soldier? Alexander, sir! No, soldier, what's your name? Alexander, sir! Well, soldier, you need to either change your name or change your conduct. Because he represents his general. You folks have been baptized Marked and sealed as Christ's own forever. You and I wear his name on our jersey. Everywhere we go, every way we behave, every promise we break, everything represents him. So if I'm angry all the time, and it's kind of my shtick, I'm Scottish, so I'm supposed to complain about everything. But if I'm actually an angry person, would you think of me as a man of God? If you're perpetually offended, are you representing Christ well? If you're greedy, when people see you, they think that Christ is greedy. See, James is just saying, folks, become more like the person that you worship. If you're bitter and you're holding grudges and you're mean, was Jesus bitter? Does he hold grudges? Is he mean? If the answer to those things is yes, keep it up. But you know it's not. And because it's not, something needs to change. So when you look in the mirror, I ask you to consider the picture that God sees. Because he sees you as a saint. He's especially fond of you. And he wants what's best for you. He wants what's best in you. And he wants what's best from you. And you have a decision to make. Cooperate with him in his work in you. Or resist him in his work in you. One life is life to its fullest. The other is the most miserable life you can live. To look in the mirror of your faith, forget what you saw, and change nothing. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for James. Thanks that he came around, that he pulled no punches, that he was willing to die rather than deny the one that he's telling us about. Lord, thanks that he's willing to say and address the hard things. And I pray that each of us has a softened heart so that when we hear what you want, we will do what you want. Not to appease you, but because we're grateful for what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit who lives within us, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Just like you used to imagine that you were somewhere else when you were growing up and you could convince yourself of that, imagine that you are the person Christ thinks you are and then try to become who you already are. It's okay, it's okay to think and to understand and to know that God is good and he's good to you, but he also thinks you're good. He came for you. You're so worthy of his love just because he said so. And if he said so, and he calls you saint, and he calls you follower of me, accept it, and then do it.
You'll fail. But times you won't. So sometimes you will, sometimes you won't, but sometimes you will. Sometimes you'll do it right. Be the person. See the person that God wants you to be. And as far as it depends on you, cooperate with him in making you that person. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. God, smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with it in the peace of Christ and have a wonderful day off tomorrow.